Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hi there, and welcome to a very special episode of The Secret Life of Cookies. I am honored to have as a guest this week, Representative Seth Moulton, the congressman from the 6th District of Massachusetts. Representative Moulton was instrumental in making a reality the new nationwide 988 number for mental health emergencies, which launches July 16th. It's a jam-packed episode, and we also get into this week's stunning January 6th committee meeting, how to get possibly cynical young adults to get involved in the political process, white nationalism, book burning, and how the Democrats can own patriotism again. Representative Moulton is joined in the kitchen by his adorable daughter, Emmy. And just a brief note before we begin, if you could be kind enough to leave a nice review on the Apple podcast site, it will help this podcast immensely. The numbers matter. Thank you so much. And here we go. I am here today with Congressman Seth Moulton from the 6th District of Massachusetts, which is something I really need to practice saying because district (laughs) and Massachusetts in the same sentence, that's a lot. (laughs) But you uh, hail from uh, Salem, Massachusetts, which for me, I know maybe you don't want to bring it up, but your retort to Mr. Trump's response to saying the Russian probe was like a witch hunt. And you were, your response still resonates in my heart. Do you, do you recall what you said? It was something to the effect of, uh, as a representative of Salem, Massachusetts, no, that's not. <laughs> it, no, he said, as a I know a witch hunt when I see one, right? Okay. It was. It was a. <laughs> it was. There are a lot of tweets between that one and now, but yeah. <laughs> yes, it was a number of years ago. But you are a Marine vet. You served in the Iraq War. You're a proud husband and dad. And here we find ourselves. We always cook on this show. I think this is probably the first cooking and politics show you've been on, perhaps. I once I once did uh, an event for some of my supporters where I cooked a meal and they had followed along. So it's not literally my first, but it's uh, undoubtedly going to be the best. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well said. And you have your daughter, Emmy, with you today. Yes. And- Emmy, you want to say hi? Hi. Hi, Emmy. You had a great idea, which is to feature one of uh, Massachusetts's best exports, which is, among other things, but scallops. The um, seafood industry is known the world over, right? That's absolutely right. And um, Emmy is my regular sous chef in the kitchen. She loves scallops. So she was pretty excited when I said, this is what we should cook. And you had suggested a sauce that's actually Portuguese in origin. There are a lot of Portuguese immigrants, specifically in Gloucester, among other places, which of course is like the seafood capital of the East Coast in many ways. And uh, so I thought that seemed really appropriate. Well, it seems like every single culture has a something like this, right? They have chimichurri, they have pesto, there's vinha de ao, which uh, my Portuguese is not so good, but it's that. It's a very similar sort of herby sauce that has a lot of garlic in it because that's what I really like. And I'm holding garlic in my hands, everybody. And we were going to do a chimichurri, but it focuses on parsley. And I don't want to get the parsley lobby after you, but Apparently, you're not a huge fan of parsley. 
Well, I don't so, love parsley. I mean, <laughs> I like cooking for other people. And if other people like parsley, then, then I'm all good. But I definitely would substitute basil if I could. Yeah. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to substitute basil. I have a little bit of parsley in mind just because I happen to grow it. And if you put, if you're chopping basil, it tends to oxidize and turn brown. And if you add parsley to it, it helps to keep the mixture from oxidizing too badly. Uh It keeps it green, in other words. Pesto just means to like, um, to mash. What we're doing here is going to mash a whole bunch of delicious things up together. And I'd love to start talking to you about what's going on because we have a lot there. You know, it's kind of been a busy couple of weeks and I'm sure you have a lot to say on everything that's going on. I have on my cutting board in front of me, I've got some basil, I've all clean, I've got some parsley, and I'm just going to begin chopping that as our first step here. That sounds great. And- we grow both basilly, basil and parsley, <laughs> try to grow a lot of things because the, the girls like that. Yeah. And so Emmy's going to pick some leaves off the basil plant here and I'm going to start great. chopping them up. That's great. That's a perfect division of labor. Can I pick them too? Yeah, I can pick them too. Sure. Oh, that's a beautiful plant you have there. This weekend launches, I think, a really important initiative that you, that you helped to spearhead, which is the 988 Nationwide Mental Health Crisis Hotline. And it's launching, I think, on July 16th. Where did you come up with the idea? Basically, it's like 911, but for mental health emergencies. Is that right? That's exactly right. Because if you wake up in the middle of the night and your house is on fire, you don't have to Google the local fire department. Everyone just knows you dial 911. And it should be that simple and easy if you wake up in the middle of the night and you or a loved one is having a mental health crisis. Like too many Americans die by suicide or don't get otherwise through a crisis like that because they just don't know where to turn for help. So honestly, Marissa, the story here is kind of long. I mean, you know, when you run for office, everyone wants to know, okay, what skeleton do you have in your closet? Yeah. And for me, the skeleton was that I suffered from post-traumatic stress after my four tours in Iraq. And even worse, I mean, I say this ironically now, but even worse, I got help for it. I went to see a therapist. And that's like just a death sentence in politics. I mean, history is littered with people being knocked out of politics because something about their mental health was disclosed, even though we know that like Abraham Lincoln struggled with depression his whole life. And, you know, if you read some of the stuff that George H.W. Bush or John F. Kennedy wrote about their time in the war, they almost certainly had symptoms of post-traumatic stress from World War II as well. So absolutely, have got amazing leaders who've struggled with mental health, and yet it's not accepted in politics. So I kept this hidden, kept it totally hidden. Oh, wow. And then a couple of years ago, I decided, you know what? Like, that's not leadership. I've got young Marines I served with who are talking about dealing with their mental health, telling their stories to me. And I haven't shared my story. So you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it on my own terms. And who knows? It might end my political career, but maybe not. And maybe rather than just making this about my story, I can introduce some some things that will really help a, a mental health agenda. And the first thing on that on my list, I had really just three things. But number one was establishing this national hotline so mm-hmm. that people know how to get help. Because there, there are really two issues with mental health care in America. Number one, people don't know how to get help. But number two, even if you know how to get help, 
you might be embarrassed to get it because you don't want to admit. That's exactly right. Even you don't have to be a politician to have there be some stigma around, uh, have there be some stigma around asking for help. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, that, you know, my, my stigma was kind of unique to being in politics, but about half Amer- half of the country who suffers from mental health issues every year just never even ask for help. Right. And so and also if you're a big, tough soldier, are you really right. supposed to be asking for, right? You're better than uh, that. Suck yeah. it up. Not soldier, Marine, but yes. You, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Or, but, but no. soldiers too. <laughs> any, any armed force individual armed force. No, that's all right. And so in, in fact, so so nine eight eight was a first part. The other two parts um, are getting regular mental health care for every service member and veteran. And the point of that, like you imply, is not just to take care of a population that certainly deserves that help, but also to set an example for everyone else. Because you're right. Like if you have Navy SEALs and Marine officers and Army Special Forces Green Berets, not only taking care of their health, mental health, but actively strengthening it, then, hey, we should all be doing that, right? We should all be doing it. The things that I've learned by having kids, and I'll say this out loud, much to their chagrin, but like kids who have anxiety disorder, right? And how it affects everything from how you socialize to how you have friends to, you know, so the statistics for teens, like one in six kids has a, a, a severe mental health illness. And so to be able to have there be something that they can reach out to without embarrassment or even anybody knowing in a sense is also really good. And I am really grateful for people who speak out about mental health issues because it's the one thing that only gets worse the longer you don't talk about it. That's actually right. And it's actually amazing what a difference simply talking about it makes. Not to pick on something you said, but even just the way you described that issue in your family, right? You said much to their chagrin, right. say, you know, anxiety disorder. I don't think you would say much to their chagrin if one of your daughters had a sprained knee. Exactly. Right? Or, you know, you end up taking an anxiety reducing medicine. It was a question of, do you do it? If, if you needed glasses, you'd get glasses. This also help this met some of these medicines will also help you function. So um it's really just taking care of what's up here in your head as well as we take care of everything else around. I mean we have annual physicals, right? If right. if I were to say, hey, after this I'm gonna go get my annual physical, you wouldn't say, oh my God, what's wrong with you? <laughs> exactly. But if I said, hey, I'm going to a mental health appointment after this, you might kind of think Jeez, right. what's going on with him? And and we've got to just totally change that dynamic so that it's totally natural to take care of your mental health, not only when you're sick, but to take care of it proactively. Right. And I think the fact that the, you know, this message is coming from the government too, I think is actually a good idea. One of the nice things also about this is that you worked across the aisle with like Republicans and Democrats. And as you know, this is not something we always get to talk about when we're talking about politicians these days. This is why, God, you work with people across the aisle. It's like a phrase that comes from the days of Tip O'Neill and Ronald, oh no, well, Tip O'Neill. Um. Yeah, so like, here's the thing. I mean, it's a new thing for Congress to really do much of anything about mental health, a little sporadically throughout history, but we really haven't done much of anything. And, you know, it, it tends to be Republicans, conservatives who are against spending money on this. 
not exactly a, a tough guy thing like subsidizing oil, right? Right, right. So I went straight to a fellow veteran. I went straight to a, a veteran who I knew would understand this issue because we've all either dealt with it directly ourselves or had lots of men and women we served with who you know deal with these issues. I mean, <laughs> it's only natural. One of, my, one of my best friends in the brain said to me, said, I don't call it post-traumatic stress disorder. I just call it post-traumatic stress because after what we saw, it would be a disorder if you weren't affected by it. That is so well put. We should champion that because that is absolutely right. In the same way that you were saying before about if I went for a physical, you know, you'd be like, what's wrong? You don't say what's wrong with you. The word, ha- it has health in it, mental health. We need to watch our mental health as much as our physical health. I mean, if I just cut my finger with this knife and it didn't bleed, you would say, what's wrong with your finger? It should be <laughs> bleeding right now, right? <laughs> right. Like if you have a mental injury, like, yeah, you should have a reaction to it. But, but just like with a, with a cut finger, we have ways to treat it. We mm-hmm. can do that. Like I'm, I'm standing here as someone who has dealt successfully with post-traumatic stress. Now, by the way, I still see a therapist, not all the time, but I still see one because I think it's just good and healthy. Like it makes yep. me a better dad and husband and congressman to be in, in good mental health and to just have a regular checkup on how I'm doing. But I also can look back and say the night sweats, the really terrible nightmares, some of the early symptoms I had, I don't have any more. I've actually been really able to take care of this and manage it. I mean, stress care has improved dramatically as well, because as, as, as therapists and humans, as we start to have, understand the process a lot more now. So here's the amazing thing about this bill is that although the point of the bill is really to address that first problem with mental health, which is people don't know where to turn for help, this gives them an easy answer. It's also addressing the second problem, the stigma, just because it's fostering so many conversations like literally the one we're having right now. Absolutely, yep. I've had so many people come up to me and say, just because of your bill, Seth, we had a conversation about this at the dinner table last night and I had no idea that my sister or my uncle or whatever else. And now we're talking about it as a family. So we've I'm, got to have more of this happening all across America. I, I completely agree. There, there were a few like negative Nellies out there, which is a political term, but negative Nelly, <laughs> who said, oh, this is getting ruled out across America and we're not ready for it. We don't have the, the money to pay staffers. What do you say to that? I mean, imagine if we delayed putting 911 in place because not every single fire station had every single position filled. Okay. I mean, that's where we are. Like, I mean, give me a break. This is going to save thousands of lives. Is it going to be perfect on day one? No, but the best way to get the states that are behind, and there are a few states we're hearing that are behind on making sure their call centers are staffed up. The best way to get them on board here is to get it running and just show them that there's a real need out there. Now, if you call and your local call center is full, when you happen to call in, your call will get automatically redirected. So the goal is no drop calls whatsoever. You're going to get to talk to someone if you call this number, but there may be some states who are constantly, you know, redirecting calls to out-of-state call centers, and they're really going to get the message, hey, you need to staff up. I think that's important for people to know because one of the things I I sort of, I really dislike about the news cycle now, even as like someone who teaches journalism myself, 
it's the sort of the whataboutism. It's like there we can't we just have something nice. Um, we don't always have to be finding the fault in these things, which is not to belittle the issue that you know there are startup issues. But sometimes it's I think it'd be a lot more useful to focus on the good of this and the good it will do, if not exactly on Saturday, five years from now. That's right. Because I mean, you know, sadly, just between now and Saturday, there are going to be people who die by suicide because at that last moment, they're willing to talk to someone, but they just don't know where to turn. I mean, that's why you have today these long 10 digit numbers posted on bridges. So if you're walking across the Golden Gate Bridge and you're thinking about this, Mm -hmm. people don't know the number. So that's why they have to post it. And now people will know the number. There are some other remarkable statistics, like something like nine out of 10 Americans who contemplate suicide, but don't actually succeed, never do it again. So the point is they realize, wow, I really wish I hadn't done this. I hadn't gotten there. That's so, an impressive statistic. Right? So like if you actually talk to someone at that critical moment or a loved one talks to someone at that critical moment, especially someone who's trained like the people on this on this hotline, we're going to just, oh gosh, it's, amazing. it's so exciting. We're going to save a lot of lives. We're going to make America a stronger, safer country just because this is out there. Yeah. I mean, my daughter went to college this past September, last year, and within two months of her going, I learned of four people that I was connected to in some way, kids who went to college, who committed suicide in their first few months of college. You've arrived in a new place. You don't know who to call. You don't know what to do. You feel full of despair. But if there's a universal number, I mean, I feel like I'm the champion for this. If there's a universal number and you go to college knowing that number, and if that number is posted in the bathroom and wherever, it's not like you have to call the health center and talk to like someone on campus, which is, could be terribly embarrassing to yourself, right? You talk to a stranger. And Marissa, you bring up a really good point, which is people need to know that if you call this number, they're not going to call your parents if you're young. They're not going to call the police. They're not going to send someone to your house. It's totally confidential, totally confidential. You're just going to talk to someone who's a professional at dealing with these situations. And not only will they help you deal with the crisis of the moment, but they'll talk about how you can get longer term therapy down the road. It's a really, truly wonderful thing. Um, Okay, wait, I have to interrupt. I'm so sorry, but I have this. I don't know. I think it's kind of impressive pile of green stuff. Like fantastic. I <laughs> um, I, that's what I was just going to talk about. I have an Im- sort of impressive bowl of green stuff here. Oh, and I have, than mine. <laughs> uh, well, you know, that's the great thing about truly the great thing about this. Uh, I mean, our dish. pile is not that big. We have to chop. How more big stuff. is your pile? <laughs> but you know, but the thing about this is it really is a grab and go sort of thing. You can bake it now and keep it in the fridge for two days, or you can be like, Oh my God, I have to do something. This sauce will go well on scallops, fish, chicken, beef, pork. You can drizzle it on halloumi cheese. You can drizzle it on grilled tofu. I mean, it goes with, it makes anything nicer. It adds brightness to it. And if you don't have lemons, you can use lime. You can use red wine vinegar. You can use, um, I'm going to add capers to mine because I think it goes nicely with scallops. But the key ingredients are something herby and green, garlic, because garlic. So I'm going to mince up some garlic now. Okay. Um, I should make some like really terrible segue between mincing and I don't want to mince words, but there's a problem in this country. 
but I, I'll, I'll resist that, um, even though I just said it out loud. One of the great things you did with this 988 thing is to be able to work across this aisle, work across the aisle, right? But I, as you know, just your general sort of person here in New Jersey, um, and I, not just me, but I see a co-opting of like patriotism, especially after the 4th of July, but a co-opting of patriotism on the part of the Republican Party or Republicans. There's, you know, there's an idea that someone could be more American than another person. And I really don't understand how that's, I mean, I understand how they co-opted it, but I wonder how we get that back. Can't, aren't we all able to fly the American flag? Why is one person seem more patriotic than the other these days? Well, the biggest problem I have is I don't understand how taking freedoms away from every woman in America oh. is patriotic. I don't see how supporting an insurrection against the government of the United States, trying to take away your votes is patriotic. I mean, I, I don't see how burning books we don't even need to discuss when that's happened in world history. Right. How is that patriotic? How is it American by any stretch of the imagination? So, I mean, look, I agree with you. Nobody owns the flag. We all own the flag, but, but if there's one party right now that definitely does not deserve to be called the party of patriotism and freedom, the Republican party of 2022. One of the things that keeps building and during the ones, uh, the January 6th hearings is the idea that there was a man who was president of the United States who didn't have the presidential, like he wasn't a president. He didn't defend the Congress of the United States when it was attacked. I mean, I couldn't think of anything more fundamental, you know, like basic president 101. Well, you're the president, you're the commander in chief. Right. You know, you're the one that we're all supposed to to, to, to follow, right? I mean, you, you're you're supposed to be the most patriotic of all, and the and uniting person <laughs> who would ever go against the United States of America should be the president of the United States of America. But you know, when I first called Donald Trump a traitor, a lot of people got angry at me. I said, "That's extreme. That's not fair." I mean. Just spend 10 minutes watching the January 6th hearings. Just pretty much turn on any 10 minutes and then argue with me that Trump was not a traitor. I completely agree with you. Unfortunately, there are still a lot of people who don't see that. How you see the 1-6 hearings swaying people one way or the other? Do you, you feel that in your community, in your district? I do think that it's starting to make a difference. One of the most encouraging, I mean, I hate to answer this question with statistics, but one of the most encouraging polls I saw recently showed that for the first time among Republican primary voters, they don't want to have Trump be their nominee. And we're not talking about Democrats right here. Democrats aren't going to vote for Trump. So the question is, are Republicans going to support him? And believe it or not, the January 6th hearings seem to be making a difference. I think that you don't hear about it as much, like people talking about it, because frankly, the people, at least the reasonable people who somehow supported Donald Trump, now they're just sort of embarrassed and they don't want to admit it. Like you spent some time in Massachusetts, so you must be a Patriots fan as well. (laughs) My brother is the big Patriots (laughs) fan, but yes. 
Yeah, if you were a sports better and you betted against the Patriots, even though you were a Boston Boston fan, you know, back in 2017, because you're like, you know, Atlanta's just probably going to win this game. And I just think that that's going to be better for me. I'm going to win this bet. And then all of a sudden, the Patriots have the most remarkable comeback in Super Bowl history. You're not going to admit that you put your money on the Ravens the next day. You're just going to quietly pretend that didn't happen. Exactly. Step away from the conversation. I want to mention that my dog is, I have a dog, but I'm also taking care of my brother Paul's dog. And his dog's middle name is Fenway. Her, her full name is Fenway Rose because he's such a Boston Red Sox fan. And she's sleeping peacefully here while I make this, hoping that some of it will fall onto her head. I've chopped up, I've really minced up some beautiful garlic here. Do you have some garlic mince? Maybe? I have some garlic. I once again think I didn't do enough. I got too carried <laughs> but, away. But it's beginning to smell good, isn't it? It smells amazing. It's like I'm the best smell of summer, I think. <laughs> this no. is really an honor. Like I've read your, you know, your writing about food because I do actually like to cook. I'm not going to tell you I'm great at it. I love to cook. You know, to actually get to cook with you, I don't know, it's pretty cool. I don't know. You're very nice to say that. It's it's an honor for me too, especially because I am. I'm a big fan of Massachusetts. Like I said to you, I'm a Western Massachusetts gal because I went to school in the Pioneer Valley. But you, you Eastern Massachusetts folks have some nice things too, like seafood. You know, we've got, awesome. we've got some nice things. We've got some nice things. I've cooked scallops different ways, but my favorite way in the summer is to throw them on the grill. Yes. And um, I refuse to use gas. It's only wood. Um, mm. And I very proudly um, grill over oak from a farm in Ipswich. And I like the smell of oak, but the primary reason I choose oak from a farm in Ipswich is that so that I can say it's oak from a farm in Ipswich, which immediately makes everything taste better. Absolutely tastes better. It's how, you know, you can take a menu that could be like grilled trout with lemon. And if you talk about it being the grilled trout has been plucked from the crystal clear waters of the Hudson River. Well, that's not, that's <laughs> not possible. Okay, wait, let's try that again. Um, the crystal Connecticut River it suddenly tastes better, right? If you know that you're eating an organic this or that, suddenly, you know, words, adjectives do make a difference. Um, make you just difference. have to use them sparingly. I'm now, speaking of sparingly, gonna, I've put in a little bit of lemon zest to add some brightness to it and sort of boost up the basil flavor. And I'm going to add some lemon juice now too. So zest and so lemon juice. Zest off the lemon, okay. And this is the time when I find out that I have a lot of cuts on my hands because all the lemon juice, ugh. Smell I don't good. Like oh, you don't. Emmy does not like lemon. Oh, that's interesting. But it's just a little bit of lemon. It sometimes makes it taste good. Ironically, her younger sister will just chew on slices of lemon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and we can. All of this is done to taste, right? So you may squeeze some lemon in now and taste it and go, "What?" Um, I've just added three delightful lemon pips, uh, lemon seeds to my, and I'm going to remove them now. In Boston, recently, I saw, um, just to like really turn it from lemons to, ugh, is um, white nationalists. I mean, they were doing this in cities across the country, but white nationalists marching unironically on the Freedom Trail in Boston and, and, and people dropping flyers outside of churches and places in Ipswich. These people have started to like, they're encouraging this chaos of their own. It was encouraged by the um, Donald Trump. And I wonder, like, what is there that can be done about this? I know that's like, it's like saying, 
what can be done about taxes? It's a complex answer, but. Yeah, but it's such an important question because, I mean, look, we always got to be reluctant to use this analogy, but this is how it happened in the 1930s in Germany. It wasn't all at once. It was little things like this, you know, spontaneous protest that nobody in Boston knew was going to happen. And the mayor has been very honest. Like she said, you know, we had no idea this was going to occur. It's probably that's true. I mean, how frightening to have these flyers distributed in our district. I mean, North Shore, Massachusetts, we kind of thought we were immune from this and we're clearly right. That's probably the biggest, scariest wake up call, though, to say we thought we were immune. Right. And look at we've got these people distributed. They're amongst us. I mean, even just five years ago or maybe 10 years ago before Trump was even on the scene, if you said, yeah, 10 years there are going to be not just people, but political group groups, political parties having book burnings in America. I mean, I just never even imagined that. That that was something purely consigned to the history books when I was growing up. Right. Now it's happening in our country. Um, yesterday was another gangbuster day in the uh, 1-6 hearing. I mean, wow. And then Lynn Cheney <laughs> slid in at the end with that little... Cheese. I mean, they're making very good television. Um, in, and I think that's a good idea. I mean that in a good way, because I think it makes people pay attention. And it means people are going to hear about what's actually going on. Do you have any like big takeaways? What were your big takeaways from yesterday's 1-6? Yesterday's well, let's hearing? start with, with Liz Cheney's rep- revelation that Donald Trump is, as we speak, trying to intimidate witnesses. I mean, what that shows is that clearly he hasn't got the message. Clearly, he still thinks he's above the law. And the most important thing to understand about the January 6th hearings, in, in, in my humble opinion, as someone who was there, is that this is not just a historic event. This is something that can happen again. This is something that probably will happen again if we don't actively prevent it from happening. That's exactly. That's exactly, I think that's why so many of us sit in front of our TV clutching our hands together. There are people who are ready to make this happen. There were people who are ready at the drop of a hat to support whatever Donald Trump had to say. This is crushed red pepper. Yes, I've added crushed red pepper to mine as well. You want to put some crushed red pepper in? But don't shake too much because it will make it too spicy. I'm going to add some capers because I'm a glutton for punishment here. Um, and I think it'll make a nice saltiness. I didn't tell you about capers, so it's sort of tricky to make you do them too. When you put all the ingredients in, we're going to pour a kind of generously vulgar amount of oil over everything and stir it around. You want this oil. It's going to be what you know brings the flavor out. Fat means flavor. And it also, you want it to be drizzleable. Is that a word? Yeah. Um, and this would be a fun thing to stir. I think Emmy would like to stir this. There's a spoon. Why don't you start stirring it? I'll pour the olive oil. So you said a lot of olive oil. Yeah, a lot of olive oil. It should be a little runny if you'd see mine here. Uh, yeah, uh, okay. I think we're good. Yeah, keep, okay. Yeah. Keep Throw that in there too. I've used a real a nice olive oil, like a you know something fancier than I normally would, because you're really going to taste it. But it really there's so much delicious like flavors in here. It just doesn't really matter in that way. We can't let this happen again. And I think I, I, I wonder what it's going to take to convince 
more people, more Republicans to actually say something out loud. Do you think there'll be some some something that will come? And I'm not ex- expecting you to like, yes, I know the deep secret of this. I mean, do you think there's a, a turning point for people who will finally, you know, will Mitch McConnell be willing to say out loud, actually, not to say, I said this something about it before. I mean, ever since we've met Donald Trump as a country, we've been looking for this turning point or the breaking point. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I just don't think there's going to be one. It's it's like many things in life, a spectrum, right? And there may be people slowly changing their minds. There may be some of my colleagues who are no longer going to say anything in support of Trump. There may be some who eventually speak out. Of course, there are going to be some like, you know, Matt Gates who are going to go to their graves or their prison cell, whichever comes first. Just, you know, can hope. supporting the guy um, right. blindly. And, you know, that's so that's just going to be the reality. But I do think that this is making a difference. I do think it's good job. Em. That's great. Um, I do think it's making a difference. And, you know, the reason why I honed in on what Liz Cheney said as my most significant takeaway from the most recent hearing is that it really is all about preventing this from happening again. Mm-hmm. And what she's saying is this is still happening. The president is breaking the law as we speak. Absolutely. But don't be deluded into thinking that we just don't have to worry about this. They're going to try it again. This is not past tense. It's present tense. That's absolutely right. right. And you know what? There are 15 years between today on this podcast and when Emmy here gets to cast her first vote in an election. 15 years. I don't want her to ever have to worry about what we're talking about today. About I, the idea that her vote might not be counted. My father was an immigrant to this country. There was nothing that he was one of those He was so proud and so pleased to be an American and so happy that this country was able to take him in because he was the Nazis didn't like him Um, and they wanted him to go away. So he luckily was able to come into the United States. And for him, it was the greatest privilege to vote and to pay taxes. You never could complain about paying taxes to my dad because he was like, it's an honor to pay taxes to this country. And also, don't you want roads and stuff? But I have teenage kids and a little disaffected, even though their mother is like, and their her, their father talks about politics all the time and the importance of voting. And they couldn't be like more well-placed in a house that's like, this is important to the world. But these people, these kids became sentient during the years of Donald Trump. And it's very hard to convince them that their vote matters. And I think that's a real challenge ahead. There's so much cynicism about government and it pains me. It's really sad and it's totally understandable. I mean, one of the questions I get a lot as a Marine vet is young people come up to me, mm-hmm. interns or you know, people in the community and say, you know, Seth, I, I wanted to serve the country, wanted to f- like you did, or like your dad did, but how can I serve for this commander in chief? Now, this was under Donald Trump. The answer I would give is actually now is the most important time for good people to serve because you might actually have to disobey an order from the commander in chief. Wow. Didn't even think about that that way. Going forward, 
Yeah. Like, he, I mean, so I was asked on MSNBC last weekend, every service is reporting recruiting challenges. Why don't young people want to serve the country? Well, one pretty obvious reason is like the government right now is taking away rights from every woman in America. The government right now is saying, I don't, you know, your vote may or may not be counted in the next election. If the government right now refuses to do anything about violence in our schools. So why would you want to work for that outfit? Exactly. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I think it's incredibly important to serve our country, whether it's in the military or Peace Corps, Peace for America or whatever. But I get it why a lot of young people are frustrated right now. But we need their votes in in November and going forward. So do you, you know, as we wrap this up now, do you have any thoughts on how we get them going, how we get them to vote when they see their rights being, I mean, you're absolutely right about seeing their rights being taken away. There are two things we've got to convince young people. The first is that politics matters that politics really does make a difference in their lives. It may seem like this distant thing that's just only happening in Washington or whatever, but it really matters. And the second thing is we have to show them that they can make a difference in politics, that they can actually have an impact. And so I get as many young people as I can to volunteer on my campaigns because I want them to see that you can make a difference. You can actually influence this stuff that's happening by being involved in your local politics, by convincing people to vote, So those are the two things. Politics matters in your life. And in your life, you can make a difference in politics. You don't need to run for office or get elected to make a difference. If we can convince young people of those two things, then they'll show up and vote. It's just hard. And we have to all all be a part of of making change. Because the status quo ain't it. We're not there. (laughs) The status quo ain't it at all. And I think a lot of these kids feel let down by all the things that you said, right? These are kids who, you know, have been doing um, live shooter drills in their classroom since the beginning of, since kindergarten. Um, And it only seems to be getting worse, not better. And you know what? They should feel let down. They deserve to feel let down. But let's, let's all bring them back up because we need that. I agree with you. And I also think we need, younger politicians out there. Oh my gosh. Don't get me started on that. (laughs) I've gotten a lot of trouble in my day for advocating for younger leadership. So, well, I'm older than you, so I can say it with uh, impunity. No one should argue with me. I'm a wise woman. Oh, right. never mind. Um, (laughs) um, I really believe that it's um, something that our country really needs to work on. And I look forward to a future with you in Congress. I really appreciate all that you're doing. And um, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an honor. And Emmy, do you want to say, do you want to say yeah. goodbye to Marissa? And we're going to cook these scallops tonight. They're going to be so yummy. Yeah. And make sure that you taste your pesto and see is it spicy enough? Is it salty enough? It'd be a lovely we, drizzle. Do we marinate first or is it just purely to put on after? I would purely put this on after. You can marinate a steak in it and it'd be delicious. And then just save some to drizzle on at the end. You might get a little burning with the leaves. So I tend to like 
not do it that way. You could also make a butter out of this too, the same herb combination. Just put it in butter and put a big pat of that on a lobster. Does that sound good? You like butter, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, we all, let's all get behind butter. Terrific. Thank you so much for being on um, my podcast today. And um, here's going forward. Thank you for everything. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much to my special guest, Congressman Moulton, and his daughter, Emmy, for their time. If you'd like to see photos of the congressman's scallop dinner, you can find them on my Substack at marissaroadcops.substack.com. It looks really delicious. You'll want to see it. Please share the 988 number with everyone you know. Let's make sure it's as well known as 911. Teach your kids, tell your friends, and share it. You never know who it may help. Thank you. Now go bake something nice. <laughs>